What a wonderful song of redemption. And yet we know that the message of oneness continues because Jesus is still yet to return. And so we must venture on. We must have changed lives and then share that message with those around us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this morning that we can consider Jesus' death. The Lord, he was buried, he was resurrected, and so his resurrection power is available to us today. Help us to see the message of oneness that has permeated the scriptures and that really counteracts the counterfeit oneness messages of today with the message of Jesus. Guide us to see that it can change our lives. And if we've come here with anything shackling us, that we can leave here free in Jesus and walk in a newness of life as a new creation in him. Help us to see this message clearly today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in 1997, I wasn't a Christian. And so on Halloween night, I found myself in my small group of about six of us challenging a group of about 20 people to a fight. It was stupid. It was ridiculous. But one by one, they chose not to fight me or my twin brother. They chose to fight one-on-one with a couple of our friends. And I remember that night, it was in a baseball field, and I told the people, you put your knives away, let's handle it fist to fist. And they were afraid of my brother and I to the point where they put their knives and their weapons away, and the fight began, the fights began. And that night, as I kept challenging people in my young, prideful days, one by one, they all said, I don't want to fight you. And they said, but there's a guy, Mike Gonzalez, who will fight you. And he's not here tonight, but he will fight you. And so I said, tell him any time, any place. So the time was the next morning. The place was the cafeteria lunchroom. He jumped me from behind. I threw my glasses off, and the fight was on. And I remember such a rivalry developing. It was really a tie that day but a rivalry developing to the point where I literally didn't know why, but I hated this guy. I had no reason. I didn't even know him very much. But from that day forth, this separation, if you will, this, this hatred between us grew to the point where we were never really in agreement upon anything. And today you'll find Chilo Gonzalez, he, he's a cage fighter. Uh, I'm a pastor. But there I was. And I'm glad I didn't uh, continue fighting with him. But there I was, thinking to myself, even while we were going through that rivalry, why are we at odds with each other? We don't even know each other. And yet everybody else kept this fight going because they wanted to see two guys going at it. But years later, a couple of years later, in 1999, I was now a Christian. And I was walking about a mile, mile and a half to the Winston Church in Oregon, And I saw a car bust a U-turn and came back, and I thought to myself, here goes the fight. I'm a Christian now. Am I going to throw a punch? Well, out comes Mike Gonzalez. He walks across the road at a fast pace, comes up to me and says, I hear you're a Christian now. And I thought, is he provoking me back to a fight? But he stuck his hand out. And we shook hands. And he was, at that point, searching for God as well. And I thought to myself about that story. 
It's a true life story how these two guys who society in a way put up as rivals, who had this growing separation between them, could at some point come to peace with each other. We could let go of the past. That's what it truly means to forgive. In the Greek language, it's to let go, leave, permit. Those are the different ways you can translate it. And I found myself not knowing that Greek word, but experiencing the fact that here, we're, here we were, shaking hands at peace with each other, allowing the past to go away. And we're still, we still interact on Facebook. We're friends on Facebook, though he is still a cage fighter and I'm still a pastor. But as I think of this idea of oneness, it presupposes that two parties are walking on the same path. It, it in essence, presupposes that they're at peace with one another to even agree to that walk. And then it presupposes that that something had to have happened for them to want to be at peace with each other. So I don't know what the steps God did in his life to put his hand out to shake my hand, but I know what he did in mine. And so my question is this. Is it possible for relationships to be at peace, for rivals to be at one with each other, for the hand of peace to be extended for maybe from somebody you never would ever think they would extend it to you. And of course, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. But that type of oneness permeates the scriptures. And so I'm going to continue where we left off last time and then show you a message of oneness that points out that God can restore. He can recreate. He can bring two lives together in peace. And then I'm going to challenge you to consider where you are at or maybe where somebody in your family is at or maybe somebody that you know is not a Christian is at, and say, could God, could I keep praying for them that God can extend that peace to them as well? We left off in Genesis, and we're looking here at Genesis chapter 5. Enoch had lived 65 years. He became the father of Methuselah. He walked with God. He had this oneness with God, we discovered. Noah also walked with God. Enoch walked right into heaven with God. And it mentions Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. This emphasis, walk with God, walk with God, we called it oneness. We found out that, that in our own writings of Ellen White that she called it oneness in Noah's day. But it says here he took him, and that's typically used for a journey or in essence, a new journey in life, such as marriage, or a new journey for someone who's now been bought or paid for as a servant back in those days, and now they're on a journey with their master. Either way you took it, you take it, it's a journey. And so he followed God all the days of his life to the point where that journey took him to see his Savior face to face. Noah tasted death, but Enoch did not. Elijah didn't taste death either, but we've had these characters in the Bible. Adam, who it says he walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. Enoch, who walked with God. Noah, who walked with God in very troublesome days. And then we find, really, they just point forward to one person, Jesus. Jesus, who is the second Adam. Jesus, who knows exactly how to walk with God. He knows when to go to the wilderness. He's led by the Spirit to pray and have that time alone with God. We find that he's also there in a perverse generation, and he stands out as pure with a message, calling people to the ark of his salvation. We find Jesus is the greater 
Adam, the greater Enoch, the greater Noah. Mainly because every one of them had this oneness with Jesus himself. And so that experience, this journey we call it, is for each one of us. And it will take us different paths. And it will provide interesting experiences like the one I had with Mike. But this oneness only comes through the one himself, the restorer Jesus. And if we allow him to restore our relationships, maybe with somebody we're at odds with, or maybe with even in a church setting, or maybe even outside of a church setting in society, we allow him to restore relationships. He can guide. He can guide for not only peace to be there, but a oneness. And so I'm going to trace this oneness concept through the Hebrew Scriptures and bring you to a message at the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, that says there's hope for your family, there's hope for somebody you're at odds with, there's hope if there's an estrangement between father and son or mother and daughter or relative and, and yourself or, or whoever, there is hope for God to restore that relationship and bring oneness. And so Cessline, we find uh, people called on the name of the Lord during Cess time. Many people did, and we're not exactly sure who they were. Were they some from Cain's line? We're, we're not exactly sure, but in Genesis 4, people called on the name of the Lord in Seth's day. It means that they had begun oneness with God. And then the family line of Noah, you find as you trace it down, they continued to trust God all the way to that watery grave of the world, but they emerge still worshiping God. Yes, they had faults. And yes, eventually he falls in his own garden of wine, but what we find is he still had oneness. And going down after the flood, he builds that altar, he worships the Lord, and that type of true worship continues down through time, whereas the heathen nations had their own worship. And Abraham comes from that line of Noah in Genesis 11, and he's taken from his father's land. That same word that Enoch was taken, same word exactly for Abraham, God literally walked him through a path to a land that he didn't have a clue where he was going. He, he, God had promised him this land, but he trusted God every step of the journey. Isaac continued that same faith. Jacob continued after him. He becomes the overcomer, founder of the nation of Israel. This faith, this oneness, it's very clear in the scriptures. It continues down through time. Twelve tribes, they develop. We find Moses comes along. They call him out of Egypt. And what we're going to see is the remembering the Sabbath day and the commandments are, in a way, a mess, an Elijah message. And we'll find it later on as well. Moses delivered that message to them. Moses leads them out of Egypt. God gives them all these instructions on how to maintain these relationships with each other and with God. We know they had weekly Sabbaths to gather their families for worship. Exodus 20, the manna, all of that. Eventually, they have corporate gatherings, sanctuary service, all of that. That atonement, at one services. And then when they got off track, he sends prophets to tell them, you know what? You're going the wrong way. You've separated yourself from God. Your sins have separated you from God. You can go down to each prophet, and they really have a message to call people back to the God whom they have turned on. And as the Old Testament ends, there's another prophet, Malachi, comes along and he says that God, regardless of what relationships you have, regardless of how far you've gone, God can restore all things, including families that are in limbo. 
But, like I mentioned before, there were, was another variant. There were counterfeit oneness movements in Bible days. And all we can do is put a few about on the screen. Cain, you had Cain versus, Cain's line going on there versus Seth's line. Cain's line goes off. We find Seth's line is referred to as the sons of God, mainly because you find Seth was called to be one who was made in the image. He was an image of his father. And his father was made in the image of God. And his father was called the son of God. Okay, Adam was called the son of God. So they're called the sons of God. Then you get the Tower of Babel. Instead of Noah trusting, like Noah, trusting God in the rainbow, the promise in the sky, they build their tower to the sky. They build their own faith. In essence, it is a righteousness by works. It is an attempt to do that, but it's also a counterfeit. We really can't trust God. That's what they're doing by building that tower. Every time they see the rainbow, imagine them building that tower, and, and it begins to rain, and they see the rainbow. Put down your chisels and your hammers, and trust that God that you don't need to build that tower. But they build it anyway. You find in the days of Noah that he sent out the raven first, and then the emphasis is on this dove, dove. All right? And that, what does that represent? In the Babylonian system, they had the raven worship, whereas in God's worship, it was a clean bird to symbolize a spotless Savior. You find there was earthly kings, kings of Edom and other tribes, Ishmael, whereas God was supposed to be the king. And then you go on down to the Edomites. They have their own nations instead of the nation of Israel. The false prophets who slander the true prophets, the false miracles to, to make people think that God is really with them. And then in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar trying to make a oneness, if you will. Everybody had to be at one with him and his faith and his belief. And he sets up that image there. And nobody, anybody who goes against it has a death threat, do they not? This is going to resurface at the end of time. We're going to see it definitely at the end of time here where we're living in this day. A counterfeit message. So how does God counteract that? Well, he keeps sending the true prophets, does he not? He keeps sending them to call them back. He keeps sending them to remind them of where they've fallen. He keeps sending them to, to correct the misunderstandings, these false messages where they didn't want to trust God. And there is one in particular in Malachi chapter 4 that prepared the way for the first coming of Jesus. And I believe if we rightly understand it, we could see that it will happen again and prepare the way for the second coming of Jesus. Next week, we'll talk more about that second coming emphasis. But for now, think about the message of Malachi 4. It says, Behold, the day comes, or will come in some translations, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be, what? Stubble, right? The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, and so they will be burned up. But before, before you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. So there's one option, is to keep going with everybody else, and what's going to happen is you'll be burned up. That's the option of the nations. Whereas the option that God's saying is, no, you can, you can see the sun of righteousness. You can have healing. Uh, any of you guys have chickens, you know what I'm talking about here. Those roosting mother hens, you know how they spread their wings right out? And they begin to cover up those eggs and to, they want them to hatch out, right? We've got a silky, another, another, now we've got another one. That they just, there's no fertile egg there. I mean, it's, it, but they're going to sit there in that nest box and spread their wings out and protect whatever's in there. They even fluff up a little bit of sawdust to pretend like they're sitting on something. It's just, 
But God uses the same type of language, this idea of spreading out, healing in his wings, covering, protecting, nurturing. And in the nurture, we find healing. And as a result, you go forth leaping like calves from the stall. I look forward to that day when we have no more sickness. I look forward to that day when we have no more pain, that, that day when, when there will be no more death, when we, we will leap forward. Now we feel old sometimes, do we not? I got some arthritis because of limes. You guys probably have some because of natural causes. Imagine leaping forth. It's describing a hopeful picture. And it says, You shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. It's very clear in Malachi that God is the type of God that will pay out justice, but he will not be cruel in doing it. He will put an end to sin. It will, they will become his ashes. And he says he's going to do it in the day when I act. Did he not act in the first flood of water? He's going to act again. I remember in creation class, they talked about Mabul, God's flood, God's flood. He acted, he acted. He's going to act again with a flood of fire and cleanse this world. He'll prune us in the meantime. But there is that hope of a glorious sunrise. Kind of like on the front of your bulletin there, that beautiful promise there of something glorious coming. And so I don't want to be a part of that flood of fire other than to be one that washes, watches as the world is renewed and the ashes are literally turned into dirt and the world is recreated and we shine with Jesus forever. And so that's where Malachi talks about there in chapter 4. But he goes on. He says part of that message is not only a hopeful end, but it also challenges us and rebukes us and says there are some things to remember. Remember how we talked about the two monuments of oneness the rest and the relationships. So we've got the rest every week that we can come in through Jesus and we can have a day of rest with him. But we also have the relationships where, where that rest that we have with God should permeate our families in our daily lives. And so he puts up both of those. The rest and the relationships, the family as monuments. And here in Malachi, right before Jesus comes the first time, there's a problem. People are forgetting the monument of rest. Isn't that literally what it's saying? If, if he's going to say remember, that presupposes that we have forgotten something. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes, the ordinances that I commanded him of Horeb to all Israel. Ten commandments, those sacrifices that would point forward to the Savior, all of that, the, the yearly festivals that would point forward to the work and ministry of the Savior, they had forgotten all of that, and they had forgotten the seventh-day Sabbath. And so he says, I'm going to send someone to you, a messenger. And really the emphasis is not on the messenger, it's really the message of the messenger. Elijah, the prophet, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Interesting. It means they must have forgotten, and then God has to send a prophetic message to call them back and say, you've fallen. I need to restore you. I need to restore your family. You need to rest in me. And so he's going to reestablish the monument of rest before Jesus comes. In fact, if you find the life and work of Jesus, he spends a lot of time focusing on true Sabbath keeping, that monument of rest, what it truly means to rest on the Lord's day, on the seventh-day Sabbath. But the other part of that message is this. The other monument 
relationships is right here in the message too. And he, speaking, not, we think of the prophet, but really it's the message, message itself, the one who's delivering the message, will turn or restore or bring back, whichever one you want to use, the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Do we not realize that the things that we are experiencing in the land are because we are not remembering our creator and resting, and our families are falling apart because he is not ruling and being really the God of our families. It was happening in Jesus' day, right before he came. When he grew up, it was still happening to the point where they kill the Son of God who delivers a message of oneness. So who is he? It's the Elijah messenger or the message itself. We find John the Baptist comes and delivers that message. We find Jesus picks up where John the Baptist leaves off, literally in death. But this message is going to restore the family. How does it do that? Well, as we look at what the Bible describes the family as, the father, the mother, and the children, one plus one plus one equals one, that points us in some way back to the way it was and points us in another way forward to the way it will be. And so that's why Satan hates the Sabbath and the family because they point to Jesus in so many ways. And I know there's all this talk about different types of relationships in our world, but God has a clear recipe for true relationships of love. Ones that are not born on lust, but are born in true desire to help the other. Ones that are not born because, oh, we, uh, whoops, we had some children here, but because they have chosen to love and to cherish and to bring new life into this world. Ones that are based upon a man and a woman and the children that come. Not that we should burn, if you will, the fields of those who are out there struggling with other choices they're making. We should try to help them see Jesus too. But this is the ideal that the picture of Scripture paints for us. And so Elijah the prophet, who is Elijah the prophet? Who do you think? Is it John the Baptist? You see, they, they thought that, that Elijah had to come first. You read that in the Gospels. They had their own timeline before Jesus came, and, and part of it was Elijah had to come first. They thought literally he would, be, he would come back from heaven down and say, this is the Messiah, right? We find in the Gospels their timeline. They would not accept Jesus because Elijah had to come first. Do we have a timeline for the end of time? The timeline itself is not the sacred part. The timeline points us to the one, and that's the problem they had, was that they were stuck on the timeline to the point where they couldn't see Jesus. So we should emphasize both. In fact, I've read in places where they forbade the, the studying of the time prophecies that pointed to Jesus. And so it wasn't Elijah himself. No, it was John the Baptist. John the Baptist came, and he really didn't, as I read his message, he really didn't talk about the family. He talked about repenting, turning to God, which means that if that is true, and that's the message of Elijah, of Malachi, which Jesus says he fulfilled it, he says Elijah has come and will come, and next week we'll talk about the will come part because the Elijah message will come again. But he recognized, Jesus recognized that John was the one to deliver the Elijah message. But as I read it, it had nothing to do with the family. 
probably because deep down, the problems we face in the family are heart issues. And if our hearts are not changed, you can read all the counseling books you want, you can take all the classes of Prepare and Rich and all these things like I'm trained in, you can take all that you want, but if your heart is still unconverted, not changed, bitter inside, fighting and warring like Mike and I were for, <laughs> for those years, there will be no peace in the home. And then a curse will come upon us. There will be no dew or rain. In the Old Testament, the children were called the dew and the rain. Where are the children today? We, as the parents, must be converted. As the grandparents, we must be converted. As the great-grandparents, we must be converted. So that when those children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren finally do decide to come back around, they see Jesus. And then when they see Jesus, their hearts will be called out to say, you know what, I want to be, I want to be in one with Jesus. And so in that way, John the Baptist did prepare the way. He did preach an Elijah message about the family, but it was really at the core of it, which was the heart change that would affect the whole family. And so each one of us is part of the family of God. We're children of God. We can place our hands in his. He can guide us on this journey. He can guide our loved ones who are not walking in the faith in this journey. He's doing everything he can with his heavenly family resources to reach down to each one of us and to the people we love. Now, faithful Bible investigators, here's one of your answers. Young people. Luke chapter 3, verse 38. I'll leave it up while I read. This describes Jesus himself and Luke chapter 3, verse 23, began his ministry at about 30 years of age. That's nice to know. He was probably about my age or younger. Encouraging. Preaching with power. Healing people. People recognizing that there was authority in the message. Not because of him, but because of the Father and that connection with him. Jesus began his ministry at about the age of 30 years of age, being, I suppose, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, son of Mathat, son of Levi. It goes on back down through time. In fact, this one goes reverse. It goes back and back and back, all the way to the time where we get down to verse 36. The son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Jesus becomes one of us, God becomes one of us himself to restore all things. And it's by accepting him that we are accepted back into the family of God. So Jesus, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, Luke 3.38. So Adam and Seth and their line was referred to as the sons of God. And Jesus comes as the son of God to restore all things. I almost wonder if Jesus and John were counterparts in this whole thing. John calling them to heart repentance. Jesus welcoming the little ones and, and pointing out the relationship between him and the Father. And that's really the family part. Two parts of the same message. And Jesus comes and he heals. He talks about his law over and over again. He restores humanity by purchasing it on the cross. Remember his baptism? 
What did God say? You had the Holy Spirit there, you had the Father there, you had the Son there. The one plus one plus one, right? And this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then on the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. The whole Godhead is involved in this. And the Godhead is involved in your restoration as well, and the people that you love's restoration as well, to the point where if you or they accept that message, then you're considered a son or, or daughter of God, child of God. And so the message of oneness simply is the Godhead restores. How do I access that? Well, what I had to do when I was, there I was in 1998, sitting there in that county jail, I had to recognize that where I really stood with God. And it, what it took was those quiet moments to sit there and and that little mat, and to look at that little booklet, and to consider the way that my grandfather had gone as a Christian, and the way that others had gone in their lives, and I decided, I want that oneness. I want to have peace with God. Romans 3 and 6, 23 says, we've all sinned, we've all gone our own way. We haven't been necessarily to jail, every one of us, but we've all had issues. And then I repented. That's a fancy cliche word these days, literally means you felt like you're going one way that was the wrong way, you turned and you went another way. Another way had to be presented to you for you to go that way. And it was presented to me. I was never there in the Garden of Eden. There was nothing for me to return to in the Garden of Eden, but I turned to the one who made a perfect world and who can save me. And that one can make us better people, parents, families, and communities. And then after I recognized I wanted to go that way, the Bible simply said in 1 John chapter 5, it, I didn't know it was saying that at the time, but later on I read it. All you got to do is ask. Ask God to forgive. Ask God to restore. And ask God to guide you in the newness of life. 1 John 5 says, if you ask anything according to his will, you have it. And so I asked. I said, God, take control of this mess. It's out of control. And things began to change. New motives began to enter my heart that I never thought were there before. I began reading the word of God and having that time alone with God and, and began to reach out to people around me. This was a natural reflex. And then I didn't know it, but Romans eight fourteen was true of me. As many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God, the children of God. So I began to walk as Jesus walked. That's how he restored me. And so in a way, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all present there in that, in my life. And they can do the same in your life, your family's lives, people outside of our faith. The same thing as well. I remember another fight, and I don't tell these just to glorify them. I, I tell them because I want you to see how, I want you to see how God can flip something around. There I was, sitting in my living room, and abuse is ugly no matter where you see it. But physical abuse happened a lot in the home. And I remember as I watched it, thinking to myself, at some point I'm going to put a stop to some of this. Because my dad was over there literally slapping my older brother around and, and just laying into him. And, and my brother wouldn't fight back. And I said to him, my, and my dad was hard of hearing, I said, I, I said it loud enough. I said, knock it off. And remember, I was the one who was in all these fights back then. So I expected him to knock it off. Well, instead he turns on me stomps on my foot, and I'm sitting down, and that's all it took. So I just went, boom, he goes down. And there my dad is, and in my pre-Christian days, my instinct kicked in to finish him off. 
And so I go up above him to finish him off, and I see his glasses are knocked off. And I see his cochlear implant is gone. And my twin brother comes out of the room and says, what's going on? And I said, nothing. And I helped my glad dad with his glasses back on. And I helped him up. And I wasn't a Christian, but I felt in my heart that not only did I do what I did was wrong, and what he was doing was wrong too. And at some point in abuse, you have to step in, but not that way. But I felt to myself, I want to have a relationship with my dad that's not built upon things like this. I didn't know where to turn. Well, there I was a little while later locked up. And meanwhile, my dad and my twin brother were going to a series of meetings by this guy, Dwight Nelson. And some people thought that Net 98 was a failure, but for my family it was not because we were into the movies and here came a titanic series of meetings and we all, my brother and my dad came to those series of meetings. They began to have a heart change. It wasn't perfect at the time. They still smoked and had all kinds of problems. But they came to those meetings there and they began sending in those manuscripts to me and I began saying, wow, I'm a Christian, yes, but these things are really wonderful and I see my dad making a decision. Well, I got out of that youth correctional facility and I, as I left Grants Pass, Oregon, I got home, I settled down a little bit, and one of the first things I wanted to do was talk to my dad, see where he was at, to see if this was really something that was changing him like it changed me and my brother, and it had. And we began studying with that Seventh-day Adventist pastor, and there we were in August 14 of 1999, and you can see this picture there, there I am going, coming out of the water, there's my twin brother, and there's my dad right there. We began sharing our faith. There was my dad, hard of hearing, but going out with literature. And there I was, knocking on doors. And we were, whenever we would meet somebody on the street, we'd hand them a piece of literature. We'd talk to them about Jesus. But as I look back on that, and I think about Malachi 4, isn't it pretty clear then that Malachi 4 was fulfilled in this situation? That the father's heart was restored to his son and the son's heart was restored to the father. But it was only because our hearts were restored to the father. And we began reflecting him. And that story of my dad and I, my twin brother, and our oneness with God, really reflects this story. Where there Jesus was, coming, becoming one of us, Saying in John 17, I and the Father are one. They had this oneness that we all desire for ourselves and our families and people around us. And that oneness involved the Son carrying the sins of us, the Son being beaten, the Son going to that cross, the Son reaching out His arms and saying, Father, forgive them. For they don't even know what they're doing. Murray didn't realize that that was Satan guiding him to knock his dad down. He didn't realize that that fight between him and Mike was really about Satan controlling both of them. He didn't know what he was doing sometimes. Forgive Murray. Forgive you. And in that forgiveness, and that statement there, it includes every one of us here. Whatever we have done, we are not far from God. The cross is proof of that. How close God will come to each one of us. So Malachi ends, and it says that if you don't have peace with somebody in your family or somebody around you, 
or with your community or in your community of faith, that God can restore that. If he can make a father love a son and a son love a father like my dad and I, if he can make Mike and I stand there and shake hands on the street instead of throwing the punch, if he can bring peace about in your life, then surely then he is Emmanuel, God with us, showing us the way, restoring our lives, one person at a time. You know, Malachi ends with that message. You read that message, that's the end of the Old Testament. And what are they looking forward to? Emmanuel, God with us, come, Messiah. And here we are, years later. What are we looking forward to? Coming of Jesus, come Jesus. But in the meantime, we need him to come into our lives. And so wherever you're at with God, invite him into your life. Invite him into your family. Have him here in your church. And he will change this world. That's the message of oneness, the Godhead working in each one of us. Our closing song is that heart cry. Talks about come, O come, Emmanuel. Talks about peace with God. Talks about restoring. All of that's in there. So whether it's yourself or a family member or somebody you know that you need restoration with or they, you know they need restoration with God, sing the song as a prayer and say, God, restore in these situations. Bring oneness with you. It's up on the screen, number 115. If you'd like to stand, feel free. Shall come to thee, oh 
Father in heaven, we ask for you to send Jesus to each one of us. Send him with a message to each one of our hearts that we can restore all, he can restore all things. He can cleanse us, help us to be at peace with both God and man, and help us to walk in the newness of life. Thank you, Jesus, that you did come, become one of us, become one within us and through us in each one of our lives so we can reflect you to those around us. We pray for those that we know who are not at peace with you, or at least that we don't see that, that you would come to them in whatever way possible so that we can see them along with you when you come soon. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Help us to receive your message of oneness. We pray it in your name. Amen.